broke the mic. Special guests, Cassie Gaines and Tony Jackson. There are dogs outside my window now howling. Okay, just didn't know that. Yeah. Down well, by the they, they are potential listeners, so yeah. you know. Fast. Marketing, baby. Oh, God. Okay. All right, I'm excited to be here. Wait, hang on a second. Folks, folks, if you heard crackling in your speakers, it was not your equipment, it's mine. <laughs> Particular my co-host. Okay. So anyway, welcome, welcome, welcome. Okay, now you can do it, Chris. <laughs> All right. So uh, we are here for a special July series, How to Tell the Damn Story Summer Series. We are going to have some special guests. We're going to talk about four phases of the writing process. And today we have not only the legendary Ink Pot winner... Oh. Creator of Blackjack, of Orpheus, of oh, so many other delightful stories. The one, the only. Yay! I'm sorry, I couldn't hear that. <laughs> and we also have. I, I could have been a contender. No, okay. <laughs> we also have with us nonfiction pop culture king. Oh, with books out on so many different titles. I'm not going to screw them up this week. <laughs> the one and only <laughs> James. Ladies and gentlemen, here he is. Woo! <laughs> the crowd went wild. Okay. <laughs> First time on the show. I'm sorry, what was that? First time on the sh on the show. Is this his He's first a, time on the show? First time on the show. It's yeah. the first. Okay, first just time. Yes. That's Uno. He has been he has been a guest uh, uh, and a performer at uh, Kids Comic Con, That's but uh, this man has is a writer of charming and beautiful children's stories, a creator of spoken word poetry paradise, a teacher, elementary school teacher of extraordinary talent and a spokesman for a certain computer company that is not paying us, so they don't get the name. Ladies and gentlemen, that's product placement, folks. Tony Jackson. Woo! Tony! Tony! Angela! All right, so for How to Tell the Damn Story summer series, we needed more than just uh, myself and Alex. We needed we did. multiple people oh, yes, we did. to we get did. us going. And uh, this panel here today is going to talk about where it all begins. We're going to talk about inspiration. So what I'd first like to do is ask you all to kind of give us your definition of what inspiration is. Well, can, can I just ask one other thing? Because believe me, the, the, the listeners, at least most of them, know us. Um, take a minute or two, each one of you, Cassine, Tony, just talk a little bit about what you do, just because, like, you know, Chris has said, don't, he doesn't want to mess up titles. So, Cassine, you know, maybe knock off a couple of titles, and Tony, you give us, a, just give us a little background. So let's let's just do that quickly. Sure. Um, some of the works that you may be familiar with, To Kill a Mockingbird, um, Mice and Men, <laughs> War and Peace. Um, Hamlet, I believe. Yeah, I am familiar with all of those. <laughs> but I am familiar with them. Uh, uh, getting calls from publishing houses. That's what that's about. Uh, so I, 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 I went to the wrong people. I I primarily write. Um, I guess yeah, all my books have been nonfiction books, um, mostly on 
I guess they've all been on entertainment. I'm currently working on a book that's not on movies or television, but it's actually on um, some people that created a Broadway show back in 1921, um, which I was I was knocking out words right before we started recording, um, which is still entertainment, though, right? It's it's still the yeah, same. Yeah, yeah. And, and if I, I just want to bring that up. Alex but, probably yeah. went to that show, but, you know. Broadway, uh, <laughs> Alex was there opening. <laughs> I think he was there opening nine. Uh, I will remind um, you. <laughs> so, and I've, I've also written um, some uh, short-form pieces for... Uh, outlets like Decider, which is a subsidiary of the New York Post, and something for Rolling Stone, and something for, um, oh boy, um, Fatherly, uh, which is a, a website, and uh, the AB Club. So uh, short form, long form, um, mostly interview-based, but um, I think the inspiration process, I'm looking forward to talking about it, because I, I imagine inspiration probably comes about in the same sorts of ways, even though the approach is different. So we'll find out. That's what we're going to explore today. All right. Let's give Tony a quick moment there. Tony, take it away, Tony. Hey, everybody. I'm Tony. Yeah, that was good. Okay. So, (laughs) Um, yeah, no. uh, (laughs) um, So I've, I've been, uh, I've been teaching for, uh, for 15 years and um, I, I I love what I do, but I I love it especially because it allows me to use uh, the creativity that is my passion um, with, with the kids and, uh, and to do that every day. And so I, uh, I also write. Uh, I, before I was a teacher, I used to do uh, performance poetry, spoken word, and I used to uh, go around the country and do that. Um, and now I love to write and illustrate children's books. Um, I just uh, there was a book that I did uh, called "I'm Jack, I'm Black" in 2012, and I recently uh, revised it and completely re-illustrated it. And um, I'm really enjoying getting that out right now, especially considering, um, the climate, which ties into, um, why I wrote the book. Um, but, uh, I am, I'm, I'm doing, I'm getting a lot more back into my, uh, my illustrative, uh, passion. And when, so, um, when is, uh, when is that coming out, uh, Tony? I'm Jack and black. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's out now. It's, uh, you can find it on Amazon. Um, and, go. uh, I've, I'm, I'm always a bit, maybe we'll get into this a little bit, but I'm always a very big creator. I'm, I've never been uh, much into pushing the stuff that I, I do create, so I'm, promote I'm, I'm, I'm learning. Right, right, right. Uh, okay. you, I'm learning. Tune in to our third or fourth uh, episode and uh, deal with that a little more. Uh, without a doubt. Without <laughs> <laughs> a doubt. Um, yeah, and, you know, um, I, Chris mentioned um, I, I, I did some work with, um, with Microsoft, and every now and then I'll get an opportunity to do that, and that just really opened me up to uh, the world of what, what's out there for myself as a writer in the in the field of education, um, not just uh, in the classroom. So, um, you know, I I don't work exclusively with them, but um, you know, like I said, that's that's given me the opportunity to talk to a couple of people, and I have some really exciting projects I'm working on now that I can't talk um, too much about. Maybe when we, we go off air. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, Once. folks, it's been a great show. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> what do we? How do we describe inspiration, folks? Uh, good question. Um, well, you know, for me, I'll just I'll just run with it. I I don't think I've ever really put a language to what that means to me until I started to do it professionally. Until I started to write professionally. Prior to that, if I look back at my childhood, <clears throat> it was like breathing. It was like you, and I see an object, I see a, a, a thing, a person, a, 
a creature. I read something and my mind just took off. You know, it just, it, I often say to my students, you know, it's the what if factor. You know, the mind would suddenly go, what if this happened? Or what if they never, or what if we could fly? You know, as, as a little kid, you put the towel around your neck and, you know, and you're thinking I, I'm a super character, usually Superman, but, you know, you think you're some sort of superpowered creature and, and you can go do these things. What if I really could do this? It was always allowing myself to just go, what if, and just play. And so that was, that was normal to me until you get into, you know, uh, certain teachers in school who would, you know, then complain to my mother that he's never paying attention. He's always off in his own head. And that's probably true. You know, it's a little annoying if the kid's not paying attention while you're trying to teach. But to, that was when it started to seem to be a problem. And I, I think to some degree I tried to pull back or maybe they're right. Maybe I'm a, a goof, you know, whatever. And so you, it, it sort of stalled out for a little while. But by the time I hit late part of junior high, I was right back there again. And mm. I, I think it's just for me, it was always organic, is I think is pretty much what I'm saying. I can go into, you know, professional experiences after that. But that's that's where it started for me. It, it just came with the package. There's no I mean, I I think inspiration comes from um, just embracing things that I like that are a little bit weird and unique. I mean, so a lot of the things that I enjoyed um, reading and watching as a kid were just things that were very, very um, strange. I mean, I was really into, like, science fiction as a kid and also just, like, you know, obviously Pee-wee's Playhouse is a, is a show that I enjoyed as a kid, which is just a, an incredibly strange um, – objectively strange show. Um, something that's coming to my mind is like, there was a book series called Animorphs when I was a yeah. kid that I loved where like all these like people that like, I guess could morph into like a dolphin or a jellyfish <laughs> or something like that. Like, I, I don't know. I would love to sit in, in that pitch meeting, you know, but, um, but these were just all things that I devoured as kids. And I, um, I don't think I fully knew how weird they were. Like they were just sort of like unique and spoke to me because they were different. So um, I guess my sort of approach or what inspires me is when I see something that um, presents as normal, but seems odd to me or unique to me. And I feel like I want to pull at those threads a little bit, I guess. All right. I want to get back to that a little bit, but let's go to Tony Jackson. Inspiration, what is it? Um, so I, I think the simplest way that I can, uh, that I think of it and, and I can describe it is, uh, is just, a, it's, a, it's a spark. And I, I feel like that um, at, the, at the core level, it doesn't always catch flame, right? Sometimes I will, I will feel it and I'll feel like, oh, I want to, I don't know if it, if it wants to, you know, catch fire as a drawing. I don't know if it wants to come out as a rhyme. I don't know if it wants to come out as a story, but it's the recognition of that spark. And it, it can come from, um, you know, my, my, something my daughter says, it can be, you know, like seeing her laugh and I think, Oh, I got it. You know, um, it can, it can come from, you know, it comes from conversations like this. Uh, and sometimes it can come from, you know, just sitting down and staring at, at the page. Um, it's, it, it feels like it takes forever. It's like that watch pot. Um, but yeah, I, I think at the at the core for me, it's a spark that shows up in a lot of different ways. Yeah, yeah, I I think it's a reaction to the world. You know, something it could be something you see at the mall, or it could be something you uh, repeatedly experience in the classroom. Or if, you know, for one of my books, it was 
you know, watching the news and, and just getting worse and worse and saying, well, uh, it always comes down. The moment is a what if, you know, uh, I see something that's kind of un- ill-defined and then I what if it. Um, and that leads mm-hmm. me to the second round. We get a lot of these ideas. How do we know what happens with the one that we act on? What is it that separates that from the pack? And let's go backwards. We'll go to Tony first and work our way around. Um, so now let me just let me just get get clear on this. Is it how do I know which one to take and well, act on? It, 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 it might be a situation of what you know that you know or that you surrender to it, right? Sure. It, it really depends. But you know what it's gonna be a slightly different for each of us. So, you know, of yeah. all the ideas that come, all the what ifs. How does that one um, separate itself and, and become a piece? That's that's a, a great question. I, I think uh, one way is that it's the it's the piece that keeps nagging me. It's mm-hmm. the one that I, I, I can't let go of. Yeah. And sometimes it might be a quick scribble down in the notebook and I may not visit it, you know, again for months and then just flipping through and I see it, you know, and, and it may try to come to me in other ways. Um and you know, like just poking it when it gets to poking at you, poking at you. That's yeah, that's yeah. That, that's how I know. If you know, if if it's something that I, I continue to go back to, I think it's it's trying to tell me that it, it needs to exist. Cool, uh, Kaz. Mm. I um, for me, it's I, I feel like I um, I can't unsee it. You know, and it's similar to what Tony's saying. But I remember I was seeing um. I stumbled upon Amy Tan talking at a um, a conference. Like it was just in, she was like a in an open space. I was just walking by and I just happened to eavesdrop, you know, on this this conversation. And she was talking about how, um, you know, she really writes very quickly, and but she sees the the story. You know, she sees the whole story. Um, and kind of gets the beats and gets the flavor for it before she sort of sits down to write. And the writing process is sort of quick. Um, I mean, I've had different projects that I have pitched to people that have gone nowhere. I've had different sort of ideas. Um, but the ones that, that I don't drop are the ones where I feel like I almost see it cinematically. I, I, it's a story that um, deserves to be told. And sometimes I think it's a book and it's an article. Sometimes I think it's something and it's just a Facebook post. I mean, frankly, or sometimes it's a poem or sometimes it's, you know, something like that, but um, it needs to exist somewhere in the world. And um, the medium isn't always clear to me, but, you know, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but there's, there's different gatekeepers for different mediums sometimes, you know, some things you can put that'll out. be the next question. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so that, that also impacts things too. I've, I've had lots of great book ideas that, um, that I haven't been able to convince anyone besides myself that they're great book ideas, you know? And so that is what it is sometimes. Wow. Uh, you know, you guys, each of you has hit on, on aspects of it. And I, I'm tending to think that, you know, maybe the medication never kicked in with me because mine sometimes, you guys know what a kaleidoscope is? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Sometimes that's, that's inside my head. You know, when we're talking about ideas and things like that, it's like something turns a knob and, colors and flex and shift position and and sometimes that's all i'm seeing is this sort of sparklers of ideas just in front of me and and it's like pretty to watch but i'm not focusing on anything 
and then something will step forward or something will burn brighter or something will sneak up on me. You know, it picks its methodology for getting to me. And, and I think, you know, what you're talking about, the thing that you don't forget that keeps, keeps coming back, that's one. But sometimes it's like I turn a carter and somebody just slaps me. Bang! You know, it's like, whoa, why didn't I think of that before? And then the trick is to, to get it down you know, in some way before I lose it. Because mm. that's the other. Then, the, you know, then you got the sparklers again. I, yeah. you know, it, inspiration, maybe for some, maybe for you guys, uh, maybe you, Chris, inspiration is something that maybe you you've corralled or you you have more control over it or you've disciplined yourself, which is something we'll talk about next week uh, in a certain way. But inspiration for me is is a is a wild Mustang. There's there's no way I control it. It happens to me. And sometimes it's nice about it. And sometimes I'm caught in a stampede and and I can reach up and grab a hold of something. And then the trick is, can I hold on to it long enough to develop it into something or does it disappear? Mm. So it's it's always an experience with me. And uh, the one idea that I work on, it might be because it's an assignment, meaning someone says, I want it. I want you to do a story or a book about this topic. And then I wait and inspiration hits me with how I'm going to handle that and what I'm going to do with it. And, I'm not, and sometimes it's again, like with Blackjack, it's certain things that I feel or something that I've heard or seen and bam, there it is. And it's, I'm, I'm in control of the fact that I want to do it, but I'm also wrestling with, will I get it done in time before something shifts in me and I'm off on another stampede or in another stampede? Mm. Uh, I, I know you mentioned I might have more discipline, but for inspiration, no, in, no discipline whatsoever. Mm. Uh, you know, a lot of ideas come. There's way too many ideas to uh, write the stories to, but you try your best. It's the ones that move in. You know, uh, that present characters and then the characters are with me when I'm in ShopRite or somewhere, you know, or um, I really love to go to the mall with the goddess and she goes into the stores and I kind of people watch. And when I start casting that story, you know, or what if this character interacted with that character, then I know that it's living, you know. Mm. Um, and that starts to bring us to the uh, the next question, which uh, Cassine has uh, kind of inspired. But I want to tell an anecdote to get there. Okay. Years ago, I was at the Southampton Writers Conference, and um, Joyce Carol Oates was speaking. And she was talking a, a, a similar process with you that, that you were talking about, Mr. Gaines, um, <laughs> in that uh, she's a runner. And when she has a story idea... You know, every morning she goes running and she starts at the once she has enough of a kind of sense of the story, she'll start at the opening moment of the story as she's running and she'll work her way, you know, kind of just seeing it as if she was seeing it, like you said, cinematically in her mind. And she says she doesn't write a word until she can go running and see the story from beginning to end with no glitches, you know, and that kind of gets us to half of the get, uh, gatekeeper's uh, um, question, you know, what are our interior gatekeepers and then what are exterior gatekeepers, right? So uh, let's start with Cassine since he brought up that word. Mm. All right, let's talk about interior and exterior gatekeepers, sir. Oh, what, what does your mind have to get past or inspiration have to get past in your head for you to think it's a project? 
Boy, that is that is a really hard question. It's a question that you, like I, it's your fault. And I, I have to say, I don't I don't entirely know why I feel this way. Like this isn't like a therapy session, but I feel like some level of like anxiety about even answering that question to some extent. Um, That's very I, interesting. Tell us more about that. I, you know, I I think the the internal so the, the gatekeeper question. I think number one is. Um, I'm very aware that oftentimes I'm writing about people that have lived or that are living. And um, when you write about people that are living or have lived, um, you get a lot of unsolicited feedback from people who knew them or knew of them or whatever the case may be. And sometimes people love what you've written. And sometimes people say, you know, I, that's not me. You know, you've written, you've written, uh, you know, this, I don't recognize this person in your book at all. Um, and it's, that's a very sort of, um, I'm always very aware internally that I have some level of responsibility to, um, the people that I'm writing about, even if they're deceased, right? Like, you know, even like, I just feel some, mm -hmm. some, um, acknowledgement of that. And also I'm aware that, there is um, ownership that I feel over the story as the person who's writing the story. But I always try and do the thought exercise of like, if someone was telling, if some stranger, you know, was telling my story, <laughs> you know, and said, well, this is my interpretation of these events that I didn't experience. Um, I would probably feel particular about that as well. And so I think there's there's nerves and anxiety about that all the time. And you just try and do the most responsible job you can with it. Um, and then from the external gatekeeper fashion, you know, the, I to talk brass tacks like I have a I have an agent, um, you know, I've had publishing deals. So my first two books were with one publisher. I pitched them. Um, a third book. They didn't want the third book, so I ended up shopping it around. That ended up being my Back to the Future book, which was the best, you know, the, the most successful book that I've done. Um, I've worked with other publishers and work for hire sort of things. I've pitched, you know, um, freelance things to different editors for per periodicals. And every time you develop that relationship, every editor sees things differently. Every editor works differently. Um, I've worked with, you know, editors that aren't the warm and fuzzy type. That's not to say they aren't nice people, but like I've definitely worked with editors that have said, this is so great. This is so wonderful. Just fix this, this, and this. And then I've had editors that have like just cut out the first couple paragraphs of that and just said like, great, fix this, this, and this. And like, you know, it's, it's a little demoralizing, but you work through it. So it's, it's tough. And I think um, it's, you know, so you're balancing creativity with also, um, a commercial aspect a little bit um, and also a responsibility that you feel to the people that you're writing about in, in a nonfiction space. And all of those are things that I feel like I'm constantly juggling. Wow. Alex. And now Alex, you've had, you've worked with so many different pop culture companies, creating stories for famous world, famous characters. And you have, you know, the infamous blackjack. Uh, maybe you can talk about, internal and external for both your own owner and, you know, creator owned and for, you know, work for hire. I listen to nobody, man. No, uh, <laughs> my, no, I mean, it, it's weird too, because I think 
probably the most powerful gatekeeper is in terms of the writing experiences. It starts with me. Uh, I am my own best and worst enemy. Uh, you know, because you know you have doubts, you have uh, pressures, you you question yourself, and I'm talking about myself. Um, I've written I've written a Sherlock Holmes play, and I did it out of love. I really did it out of love. Uh, I grew up enjoying the character. I thought it was wonderful. I watched. I, I loved mysteries, and Sherlock was one of my favorites. And you know, I, I would have been happy at some point in my life just writing a Sherlock Holmes story. But then at the point that I decided to write a Sherlock Holmes story, a, a play in particular, it was because I'd been introduced to a real-life character named Ira Aldrich, who was a black thespian, that's thespian, an actor in the 1800s, an African-American actor in New York who hooked up with a British touring troupe, Shakespearean troupe, that went back to, to England. And he went to England with them and performed over there and eventually became a continental star. Uh, not without you know prejudice and things entering his life, but it was so fascinating to find out about this man, this real human being who lived during that time, and a black man at that, and what he went through, and I wanted to write about that. I really did, um, but I also knew, and people, and by the way, the man's name was Ira Aldridge, and, and people said, well, why don't you just write a play about Ira Aldridge, and I knew that I could write a play about Ira Aldridge, <clears throat> and maybe 30 people would come and see it and learn about him. And I, but I could write a play about Sherlock Holmes, introduce the fact that Ira's family lived at that time and the things that, and a bunch of people would come to see a play about Sherlock Holmes and learn about Ira Aldridge. And so then it became a thing, can you actually write a Sherlock Holmes story? Can you actually write about this man's life? Can you actually do this? And it was really a battle uphill to 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 get that done because it was a lot of inner doubts and that's why i say i think one of the great gatekeepers and it's not necessarily beneficial at all is our own sense or lack of confidence or sense of insecurity or fear or whatever that's the biggest boulder i've ever had to push up a hill when i got to write batman or or superman which uh or, or scooby-doo and those things again yeah i want to to make the editor happy i want to turn in a good product, uh, a good story that the editors will like, that the company will pay for, all of that. But I wanted to please myself. And so it was, okay, editors, me, editors, me, editors, me. And and when an editor, you know, cuts something up, yeah, I don't know if I agree with that. Or, but, you know, again, it's a job. So you, you shift your thinking. If you want to be pro, you pick your fights. So sometimes it was less of a pushback if okay you're gonna cut that or change that yeah i'm not gonna i'm not gonna get really caught up in that but other people's property yeah if i gave a lot more give and take but i still worried about my own ability to do it when it came to blackjack like with ira aldridge and sherlock holmes it was a personal reason for doing this so once again it became as a black kid growing up most of my fictional heroes were white and there was not a huge market for black guys running around saving lives and 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 inventing things and stuff like that in terms of television and film if we were in it we were in some sort of subservient or background shot or whatever but it was not the lead and i hadn't thought about it consciously as a problem until you know the 60s when the protest things were happening and even then it was this other thing we were talking about real life and can we 
get our place in the world. And so that was a gatekeeper, black people trying to hit equal footing. So that's something I was wrestling with in my own way. But then in the 80s, when I created Blackjack, it was, it was all sort of congealed. It was, I had wanted to be a hero. I had wanted to go on adventures and explore and, and save lives and all that. And, and I can see a hero doing that. And then I created that hero because there was no gatekeeper. I created that hero in my head and I wrote some, some rough drafts and things like that. And, and then I did research to fill in the background because I wanted it to feel like it was solid. So I was still trying to please myself. And then I started putting down in notes and research all of these black people, male and female, who did all these remarkable things and did fight in wars and did invent things and did all. And it was like, okay, now the gatekeeper is going to be all the people that don't get it. And that was years of running into people going, yeah, well, no, it's a cool idea, but does he have to be this? And you know, I don't know if the a white audience is, or I don't know if it's going to sell outside of Watts. Right? So that was a, a, a societal, racial, systemic barrier that I had to get through. But I kept pushing because I now knew this was real. I now knew this was something that had to get through the gate. And I believed in it so much that I was willing to push it and take whatever amount of time it took. And, and you know, it took some time. So in conclusion, long-winded, um, for me, the first one is always interior. It's always me. Can I get past, and I'm better at it, but can I get past my own fears and concerns and insecurities about it? And then after that, the more professional mindset sets in so that I can deal with the exterior gatekeepers, the people who won't get the idea, the concept like Kasim was saying, you know, the, the, the idea that I know is really great, but they don't see it. Okay. I'm going to be very, really quick. Um, I'm in a season of working with editors now. I'm working with three at the moment uh, on three different projects. And I got to tell you, I, I love the editorial feedback. Uh, I'm on round three with uh, uh, the, the biggest project. And at this point, she's got the really sharp axe, you know, and she'll highlight like three or four sentences. And, and what I do uh, as an exercise is, do I, do I absolutely need those? And then read it without it. And if, it, if you don't absolutely need it, then it helps, you know. And um, she has a couple of pet peeves with words. And um, all right, how can I... How can I be more creative there? So I'm having a great time with editors. I know that's not really said a lot, <laughs> but yeah, uh, you know, it serve the story, serve the story has been my mantra for the longest time. So I want to keep that part short. I want to go to Tony. Tony, one of the things that's interesting with you is that for a lot of your projects, you are both the interior and exterior gatekeeper. You are the uh, writer, director, performer, producer. <laughs> There's so many things because, you know, there'll be uh, maybe a performance a week sometimes, you know, where you're going yeah. from inspiration to finished product and putting it out there. So that's a lot of hats to wear, man. How do you do it? And how do you keep those gatekeepers uh, honest? Um, so, yeah, I think I think my my gatekeepers uh, sound a lot like uh, the, the way that Alex described it. Um, and they're, they're different facets of 
my personality and, and who I am as a, as a person, as an, and, and, and as an artist. And I feel like, um, writing, writing books for me, uh, is, you know, I'm, I'm not usually working with an editor and a publisher. So when I'm, when I'm writing books, um, I, I approach it differently when I'm writing raps or when I'm writing poems, I often feel like I'm battling myself. Like I, I want to, I want to impress myself and I want to do that technically. I want to do that, um, artistically. I want to see, is it, is it different? Is it, is there something unique about this? Um, and so one of those gatekeepers is definitely, uh, uh, purpose like purpose and reason right like why do i have a reason to do this um is it and is it in is it an important enough reason is there enough purpose within this project for me to take the time to really pour into it and make sure that i see it to completion and um i've had some that you know i i realized that the purpose was enough immediately um and some that that, that takes a longer time uh but what i've also started doing in terms of just the writing that I'm doing every day is I'm sharing what I make pretty quickly. I'm doing, I'm trying to do a lot of turnaround and I'm just sharing more. And, uh, there's a, uh, there's a guy, uh, Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk, who is a, uh, I'm, he's like an entrepreneur and he's a, you know, he motivates folks and, um, he is, is, uh, talks a lot about just put out, produce, produce, make content, make content, make content. And, um, and that's, and that's part of what I, what I try to do now, um, because I, I realized that I was sitting on stuff for a very long time and it might be one line. It might be, you know, one, one thing that I was able to do artistically that, uh, that hits. And now I've started getting that out. And what that also does is it forces me to go and, um, and do something better or do something else. Um, and then in terms of, um, in terms of actual book writing, I feel like the gatekeeper, because because I'm working with me, I I really go back to what is what is the need for this? You know, why why is this something that I need, and is this something that I feel uh, someone else may need, or or it could be useful useful to somebody else? And um, I find that that's what pushes me to try to to get a book finished. So I'm I'm taking a lot from all of you hearing about working with editors, hearing about working with, with publishers, uh, because for me, a, a lot of the times the two, uh, the two types of creativity kind of cross and I have a, I have a tough time deciding where one starts and one finishes. Am I doing this for me? Am I doing this because I want somebody to, to take it in and eventually, you know, maybe sell it or, or, or have it seen. Um, and, and quick, a quick story about that. Like with the, uh, when I did a commercial, um, I, I used a song that I wrote in the commercial and the song that I wrote, I wrote for my students, right? I produced that for my students and I made it as, uh, as witty as possible, as informational as possible. And so for me, when I finished that, I was super proud of it in the classroom. And then when that got out and it was, you know, in the, in, in multimedia and, and it was going on commercials and stuff like that, there was a very small piece that was taken and that was the editing, right? That I didn't have any part in. So what they edited down was this small line that a lot of people like jumped on and were like hacking apart. And, you know, people were like really like hating and just trying to like criticize. Um, and, you know, that to me took me a minute to say, okay, wait a minute, what I created, I was happy with. It passed all the gatekeepers. 
right? Like it, it made it through. And the fact that some people saw one piece that somebody edited down, um, I had to find where I was okay with that. So that, that's like, that's my editing story. Yep. Well, Stephen King tells the story that, you know, you write your book and you're the gatekeeper for that book. I'm paraphrasing to keep that word in there. Right. And mm -hmm. if you sell it to the films and cash the check and remember that your book is your book and the film is their version of your book. There you go. And you Leslie, Leslie Charteris, who created and wrote the saint back in the twenties, thirties, uh, was one of those people that I think wrestled with that concept because the books were his, you know, the story, the portrayal of the characters mm -hmm. and all that. And his character was much edgier and right. all of that. The moment they started doing the movies, they even for the very first one, they softened it. And by the time they did a series of movies with his character, it was like he was a dilettante. He wasn't, dangerous, mm. you know, and then the TV series came and that became a whole nother thing. But he kept cashing the checks. You know, so he complained, but he kept cashing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I want to counter with a, a story too. Frank Oz, when he directed Little Shop of Horrors, the the ending originally was true to the theatrical right. um, the play, where uh, spoiler alert: Audrey Two takes over <laughs> the world and uh, and eats everyone. And they they had test audiences. Test audiences hated it. They felt betrayed and so he learned he said he learned two really good lessons it was his first time directing a film with humans prior to that it was all mm -hmm. muppet movies really right. so um so he said the first thing is on stage you know it's about the medium on stage you are separated by x number of feet but in a film audiences fall in love with the close-up people feel a right. certain kinship to these mm -hmm. characters and so you can't just kill them you have a certain you know responsibility to your audience the second or or the audience isn't going to react the same way necessarily mm -hmm. right. the second thing that he learned was when someone's when a studio is giving you 45 million dollars and they expect a return on that investment you're not making it for you you yeah. know you you <laughs> if the audience is saying you're making the wrong movie you can be stubborn or you can listen to the audience because at the end of the day that's that's sort of the the relationship. That's the transaction that you're yep. that you're making. You know, I'm going to make something that you're going to enjoy. And if you don't enjoy it, then I haven't upheld my end of the bargain. It's a promise. It's a promise that you make. And the only audience that will go along with anything you do is the audience that's hooked on you. You know, they'll come see your stuff because they know what you do to whatever, mm -hmm. and they're with you. Other than mm -hmm. that, you better please them, or the popcorn money's gone. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we have uh, we have two more questions, okay, for this for this. Eighteen forty-seven. I remember that year. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> I know you okay, read, you so, read about uh, it, but I was there. No, okay, go ahead. It's true. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tell both, and I'm gonna answer the uh, the first of the two, and then we'll go around. Okay. And then we'll have the last one. The first one is how do you handle assigned inspiration? Right. That, you know, you got this opportunity, but now you have to inspire yourself to come up with something. OK. And then the last one will be kind of be a, a lightning round. Uh, one bit of advice to aspiring writers or writers um, uh, looking to be more productive with their inspiration or looking to widen the uh, uh, the the view of their inspiration. OK. All right. Okay. So as far as assigned inspiration, I'll, I'll offer this. 
um, again, over these last few months, I've gotten the opportunity to write for a few anthologies. And um, they all had some kind of theme, right? So it wasn't something I had laying around. That would be great to have enough stories that, oh, look, that one fits this. That would be fantastic. But, but that is. <laughs> yeah. So I had to kind of do an assigned inspiration um, exercise. And one, one took place on the West Coast. So, all right, what if, what if some of my characters on the West Coast, what would happen, right? Another one was, you know, um, two other ones were, in, you know, crime stories inspired by somebody's music. So you had to take like a song title and then kind of ask yourself, what if from there? Um, and the other one was uh, kind of reflective of um, a certain situation during quarantine, right? So going around and asking yourself, what if, and in, in the case of the music, playing the music and hearing what story comes out and all that stuff, and then letting it go, I found very inspiring. And I was able to do... Um, everything from romance uh, to um, gender swapping on the music um, to a very Black Lives Matter oriented song, uh, story based on a song that I think came out in 73 and 74 from an English group, a uh, very spacey English group. But, you know, what I'm saying is you're allowed to go wherever your inspiration is, just seep yourself in what are the, whatever the assignment is, you mm -hmm. know, uh, Alex, you had an assignment to create somebody for Blackjack, uh, for Black uh, Batman. Um, that was an assigned inspiration. Mm -hmm. You know, let's start with you. That one, or you could choose something else. But how do you handle assigned inspiration? And we'll go to the others. You know, again, uh, I'll just say for the audience' sake, anything and everything that we share with you today, you know, are things obviously that work for us or that we have talked to or listened to other uh, authors that we admire um, remark on and in terms of methodologies or things that they've done. So writing is, is a personal thing, very much a personal thing. It comes from you and then out. And so to answer your question, Chris, um, when, when the Batman office, uh, I should say, yeah, the Batman division of DC, and then the editors came to me and asked me to come up with a black hero for the Batman universe, uh, you know, the first thought that went through my head is he will not be an ex-con. Yeah, that was the first thing. Then the second thought that went through my head is he will not be uh, from a poor background with one parent who barely was scraping by or was on social security or social services. And those two things flashed in my head because at that time, that was what seemed to be the basis for a lot of black characters in comics, is they were either some sort of social worker um, whose parents were not in their lives or had only been raised by one parent or coming out of poverty or whatever, or they were living in that environment, blah, 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 blah. And I, I felt, you know, I'm sorry, the, the, the African-American world is much wider, it's much, there are much more variations and... I wanted to make that point with this character. And then I, I sort of went from that, those two very personal sparks. Like I said, you know, you know, the sort of sparkling confetti, you know, before my kaleidoscope. Um, from that trickled down, why would somebody become a crime fighter or a superhero? And then what was this character's background? And I began to build that. So I began to see the character 
that would become a, a hero, a, an African-American character, and asking myself, why did he do this? What was that about? What did he go through? So for me, an assigned character, even, even when I was writing Scooby-Doo, which, okay, you got a goofy dog and you've got a black superhero, uh, always the same thing. Who are they? And in getting to know who the character is, even if I've been exposed to them for years, asking myself then, as someone who's about to contribute to the canon or create this new world, who are they? What is the world they live in? And how does it affect them and they it? And that's where my what ifs come from. That's how I tend to approach assigned work. I'm working on something right now, which I can't talk about. But it's a period piece. It takes place in the 19, uh, early 1900s. Um, and there are aspects of it that the moment I got the assignment, I did exactly the same thing. Who's there? What's happening around them? How does that affect them? How do they move through this? What's, what gets me excited? What sounds like fun? What do I have to look up to start building that world that these characters live within? And I think that's the respect you know, that you give any assignment that you get, whether it's it's uh, to take your character and do something with, or when you're going to receive somebody else's character, they're putting that character in your hands. That's that's a responsibility, whether you love the people you're working with or not. When they take something of theirs and say, "Here, work with this, give me the next level of this," that's now on you to do your best. So, to me, I again I look at it as the character, the world, and how do I. Uh, affected with, with, with professional respect and honor. Cool. Uh, Kasim, what do you say? Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree with so much of what's being said. Um, I, of late, most of the things that I've done actually have been sort of uh, assigned work or, um, hey, what about something like this? You know, and, and a good example, I think, is um, after... Uh, Carol Spinney, who was the puppeteer who was inside of Big Bird, um, when he passed away, I got a phone call from an editor that I'd worked with before who said, um, I really would love if you, you know, I, I know that you're a, a Muppet guy, if you want to write something, um, you know, I'd love for you to write something, but it's it's got to be, I need it in like four hours, and also, now this is this is the twist, and also um, that Tom Hanks' Mr. Rogers movie had just come out, and he said, and, and by the way, um, we, we're doing really good, doing really well on our website with Mr. Rogers' content lately, and if there's some way that you can work in a Mr. Rogers' angle, um, I'd love for you to do that. So I, I, I go, I, okay, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, and I like four hours and it's, it's ticking down 24 style. And so that's, that's an assignment, right? I don't really know where I'm going. I'm supposed to write some sort of eulogy of sorts about, about Carol Spinney. And as I was sitting at the computer, staring out the window, it's pouring rain. And the only thing that I thought of was sunny days chasing the, the clouds away. Mm. And I thought about the fact that Sesame Street is in New York, Sesame, you know, it's filmed at Astoria Studios in in, uh, in Queens, and it's raining on Sesame Street right now. Mm-hmm. And Sesame Street starts off every episode with telling kids that there's going to be sun after these cloudy days and rainy days. And I ended up finding this one time that um, 
Fred Rogers and uh, Big Bird, I guess, were on each other's shows. Big Bird went to Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and uh, and Fred Rogers went to Sesame Street. And it's this fascinating anecdote that I, I didn't even know about before I got this sort of assignment. But they were at loggerheads, actually, because Mr. Rogers wanted Carol Spinney to show how Big Bird worked. He wanted him to show that this is a puppet and this is... And, Carol Spinney said, no, you can't do that because, you know, Big Bird is a person. You know, Big Bird, not a person, Big Bird's a character. You right. know, we have to believe in Big Bird. And Fred Rogers felt very strongly that, well, kids need to know that it's okay to play make-believe. It's all right to imagine. It's okay for Big Bird to not be real. And so they end up actually on both of their shows uh, dancing around this concept of whether or not you should believe in fantastic things to be true or whether or not it's okay to know that fantastic things are, are come out of an imagination. Anyway, what I ended up sort of writing about was this, these two moments in television and saying, it's okay to tell kids that the guy inside of big bird is dead, but big bird is not dead and that they are two separate things. Mm. And, and big bird is both real because the character will be back and mm -hmm. also the man inside him was just breathing life into him temporarily. And, you know, if someone else had gotten that phone call, I don't know what they would have written. Um, but that's what I came up with literally just inspired by sitting at the computer, not knowing what to write and noticing that it was raining and having those lyrics sort of pop into my head and it taking me down some path. And so, wow. so, yeah, so it, it comes in all different in all different ways. And I think as long as you are as long as you feel like you're saying something true, you know, I know I spoke before about there's a commercial aspect to a lot of what I write, but mm -hmm. it's it's never I mean, believe me, I, I, I'm not living in a mansion. There's no I'm not getting rich off of anything that I've written. <laughs> you know, it's it, it's all about wanting to say something. And sometimes you don't even fully know what you want to say until you start writing it. Um, but if you're not saying something, for me, it, it's not worth doing. Mm. Well done. Well done. So, Tony, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I feel like it goes back for me to the, uh, to the, the gatekeepers, which, um, which Case just touched on um, for me. And that is if, if I'm assigned something, and I guess it, it looks a little different when I'm assigned things. Most of what I'm ass the assigned writing that I do now um, is in the field of education in some way. Um, and so whether it's speaking at a conference or, uh, or writing a poem for, for an event, um, I have to find my truth in it. And so, you know, that, that comes across in, in, in anything that, you know, if I'm writing lyrics, um, if I'm writing a story, I have to find my truth in it. Even if the story is fiction, I need to find where it is that, uh, that, that my truth is. And that could be the truth of the message. It could be the truth of who the character is or how this character comes across. Um, you know, the, the truth will be there in, in lots of different ways. And so I, I enjoy assignments. I, I enjoy the, the assignments that, that I've been privileged to have um, because they're, they're like challenges. And, you know, like I said, I, I feel like I'm constantly uh, battling myself as an MC and, and as an artist also. And so when you throw something in front of me and say, you know, can you write a 30 second piece about X, Y, Z? Um, I know that the people who have found me um, to this point know the writing that I do. 
And so I know that they came to me for a reason. And so I know that I'm going to give them who I am. I'm going to give them uh, how I write. And I'm going to try to make it as, uh, as, as true and as me as, as I'm able to within whatever parameters they, they, they've given me. And um, I, I remember in college auditioning for a, uh, a Sprite commercial with uh, a friend of mine and another poet and uh, going in there. Like, I remember to this day, I remember what we wrote. You know, I, I, it was it was at a time where uh, it must have been around the Deaf Poetry Jam time where that was big on HBO and a lot of the soda brands and all these different companies were throwing it. You know, McDonald's had like hip hop and, um, and and spoken word in their commercials. And so we came in there as poets writing about Sprite. And I remember sitting in the you know, in the dorm room, just like with our our pens just like going back and forth. And we were trying to be as verbally dexterous as we could and, uh, and, and still be on target. And, um, and, and I, and I remember to this day, you know, it, it ended up, um, you know, we, we didn't go on to, uh, you know, commercial fame there, but it was, it was a lot of fun. And so I, I, I thoroughly enjoy, um, those assignments. And I also think about that as a teacher, because anytime I'm going to assign something to my students, I want them to think of that the same way. I, I don't want it to be something where they feel like they have to separate themselves um, and so that there's, they have to get rid of every piece of themselves in order to write something. I think that's something that um, is um, that's something that has been done in teaching, but I think that's one of the things that, that we are, we're seeing uh, teachers correct now and fix is allow, allow writers to write their truth or to, to exist in their truth. Cool. All right. So lightning round, ladies and gents, one bit of advice that you would give to uh, aspiring writers and writers who are looking to spark that in, uh, imagination, that inspiration. Uh, what do we say? Uh, who wants to go first? Ooh, 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 ooh. Go ahead. <laughs> Teach. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> Quick one. I, I would say uh, the, the, the thing that I know that I, I had to learn over a period of time and I always push to my students is try not to believe the very first idea you have is the best one. It's the only one you're going to get. You know, that. Yeah. OK. Yeah. I hear. <laughs> Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Tony. That's it. You know, just just push. Pet. You got it. Boom. Keep going. See what else you come up with. Keep going. Keep going. And at, once you just expand and really let that happen, I think you'll find more often than not. Even if you still go back to the first one, you'll still look at the other ones. Oh, this is nice. This is nice. And you may be able to use those at a different time. Or you might find that the fifth idea is the monster. But either way, definitely try not to let yourself stop it at idea number one. Keep going. Mm. Mm. Case? Uh, so, okay, lightning round. So two quick things. First is um, when you feel inspired – Try and write in that moment. Um, there's something about that moment that has inspired you. So trying, even if you change your idea or whatever, try and get it out at that point. Um, it came to you at that moment for a reason. And number two is uh, the first paragraph you write is almost always trash. Um, I think I've almost always just deleted the first paragraph. Sometimes it survives all the way to the end. And then when I'm rereading it, I go, I don't need this at all. And the second paragraph is the first. Yeah, fine, cool. I'll jump uh, piggyback on what uh, uh, Kasim said. I still believe in the index cards, carry some around. I write uh, on the blank side, I write the big idea, 
and on the line side, lines of dialogue, details, whatever I can. And then I just put them in piles and, and let that idea, that inspiration, that story live with me. And then if it starts to grow, then you know, right? That's not so much for a sign, but it's for, you know, your, your organic inspiration, that kind of stuff. All right, what does that legend mm. Tony Jackson say? I, I love that. I love that. Um, I, I, I think... Uh, I think one thing I would say is uh, don't be so quick to trash the ideas that you, you, you know, your, your bad ideas. Don't throw away your bad ideas so fast. Um, uh, sometimes, you know, I had a habit of like scribbling out things in my notebook, um, sort of put a big X. And um, but I've, I've, I have found over the course of time that um, sometimes ideas that I thought wouldn't work, just I wasn't ready for. Um, so I, I would say hold hold on to those. Um, it's, it reminds me of uh, uh, there was a, 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 a voice actor who was talking about how um, when you're trying to find a voice for a character, sometimes it ends up being an imitation of another character that you already know of. Um, but that sometimes that's where the great voices will come from. You know, your your imitation of something else, it, it might not sound the way that uh, that it was supposed to for that character, but maybe you have something else there. So that's what I try to remember about my ideas. I try not to compare them to uh, the, the best idea of someone else, but I, I, I try to compare them uh, uh, against the, the ones that I've had. And then I, I am gracious with them. So I say, you know what? Okay, this I, I wasn't ready for this idea. Now I may come back to it, you know, in five months and, and think it's still trash. But um, but it, but at least I have a bank, you know. At, at least I, I I'm still generating. Mm, beautiful. And we hope that uh, this episode on inspiration has inspired you and helped you to figure out how to tell the damn story. Alex, any final words? Huh? Oh yeah. I'm sorry, I was being inspired. Uh, actually, I would I would say no. This has been a great gathering. I enjoy working with everybody here, and and literally, I am. I'm sitting here thinking, wow, just something like this every now and then. In other words, this has inspired me to think about yeah. doing something about inspiration on on, on you know, a quarterly basis or something like that. Because a lot of people, you know, they 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 worry about it. They really worry about. It. They're scared, and I think things like this help you understand. Take a breath. You know what? Mm -hmm. And and postcards like you know, or index cards, notepads, speaking it into your cell phone, and then you know whatever it takes to capture the idea, the time. Absolutely, get it down. You can always come back to it later and flesh it out. So never that say is I have to remember one of that, many ways. You won't. Yeah, mm. right. one of many ways to tell the damn story. Cassine, Tony, wonderful to have you here. We got to keep doing this because. Damn, I tell you what, good. I, I hope I hope to talk to both of them very soon. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So Let's all right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. We'll see you soon. Cassine, Tony, Alex, remember, tell a damn story. Peace. Peace.